Hello and welcome to another podcast on To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm Mr. Sebastian. I'm Hannah Graves. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about part one. Um, uh, part one uh, is uh, essentially the nostalgic, uh, warm, fuzzy centre uh, of the novel. Uh, the structure of the novel has um, essentially childhood uh, and the uh, this rose-tinted view of Maycomb represented in, um, in chapters uh, 1 through 11, where uh, although there are some, some, some nasty bits, for the most part, the whole... Uh, the, the, the whole uh, novel begins with this very happy childhood of scouts. And then it's in part two that she witnesses the trial and she starts to see injustice and hypocrisy in society. And that's when she essentially has a threshold moment. She's, she starts growing up and it, it changes the way she perceives society. But part one is really, really important because it sets up um, that she did have a, a happy childhood. It sets up that... Uh, her early years in Maycomb uh, were good years and she had friends. And uh, Jem repeatedly says throughout part one, um, the folks in Maycomb are the best folks in the world. And then by the time you get into part two, he recants that and he says, I used to think this, but I don't think that anymore. Uh, so um, in this whistle-stop tour of, of part one, what do we learn about Maycomb? Um, we learn that it is blighted by the, the Great Depression in the mid-30s, and I think nowhere is that clearer than in school. Yeah, we learn a lot about class through the early chapters here. We learn a lot about how uh, the Great Depression has affected the community. Um, you know, we've talked in an earlier podcast about how we kind of get the signals for you know, the setting and how we establish that we're during, this takes place during the Great Depression. We also uh, have talked about what that was. But how we actually palpably feel that as readers early on in the novel is through Scout's introduction to school, which, you know, lest we forget, is often our introduction to other people and other people's lives. And the characters she meets at school help kind of us as readers understand the lay of the land and make them and what people think about each other and how people are stratified in different ways. Now, a major part of the novel as it goes on becomes about the stratification by race and the discrimination faced um, by black Americans and specifically Tom Robinson. But we learn a lot about uh, dif different kinds of classes that exist. And we learn that basically, although it's a depression for everyone, families like the Finches and Atticus, who has like a kind of professional job, have weathered this fairly well. But there are other families that are named really early on who haven't. Yep, two of the key families to bear in mind are the Cunninghams and the Yules. Um, uh, all of the kids, with the exception of um, the, the Finch family, all of the kids uh, are desperately poor. And there's references to them having lice, looking malnourished, uh, and some of them not even having shoes. When it comes to uh, the Cunninghams, they are poor and perhaps uh, represented at times as being ignorant in the novel, but they are honest and they have integrity. And um, uh, we get Walter Cunningham mentioned who pours molasses, which is like syrup, uh, all over his food at lunch when he's invited home uh, by, by Scout to have lunch. Um, uh, he pours um, it all over there, which represents, you know, how, how hungry he is, but also how poor his manners are and how, you know, he's clearly eating everything in sight because he doesn't know if he's going to eat again. Um, they're represented as poor, but they have integrity. They, they, they never lie and they um, always pay back their dues. 
they are interesting if you uh, earmark all the pages that have a Cunningham on them, especially in part two, you'll start to notice um, that they represent almost like a bit of a sort of salt of the earth kind of people who are good at the core, but maybe need some prompting essentially from liberal figures like the Finchers. Um, so you've got everyone's poor, especially the Cunninghams and the Yule family. So yeah, this is another family that obviously becomes significant later in the novel when we meet Bob Yule, who is our key antagonist. Um, I think it's really interesting um, once you've, you know, kind of got the lay of the novel as a whole to go back and reread the end of chapter three, which is where we start to see Atticus's discussion of the Yules even before the trial, even before things are really rolling with all of that. And we get a sense of his attitude towards the Yules as people. Um, and it's kind of damning. I think it's interesting to discuss in class potentially because his, you know, attitude towards them are quite dismissive. I mean, we do meet this one, you know, Yule figure. I mean, do you want to say about um, who we actually meet in these early chapters? Uh, oh, yeah. So Boris Yule, um, uh, he is described as having been held back a year. So he's very big for his age. Um, uh, Miss Caroline shrieks when she sees him because she sees something move in his head, which he doesn't seem too bothered by, uh, by it. He just reaches into his hair, squeezes whatever cootie uh, or, or louse uh, is in there and just sort of smirks to himself. Um, he's described as being dirty, disheveled, and he is foul-mouthed and rude, and he reduces the teacher to tears. And he is our... If you consider the Yules as being our antagonists... We don't meet another Yule until way later. I think really not until chapter two. And then they, you realise how important they are. And if you're a very close reader, you'll think, wait a second, didn't I meet one of the Yules right back there at the beginning of the text? And wasn't he absolutely loathsome? Uh, and, that is, uh, and that's Burris Yule. So if you've got a question in your exam on the importance of the Yules, they, they do appear, they crop up and they, they span the entire course of the entire text. And this is an interesting point for class because they're contrasted quite closely in these early chapters with the kind of salt of the earth Cunninghams, even though everybody's kind of equally desperately poor, uh, you know, kind of farm living agrarian lifestyle, unlike the professional white collar family of the Finches. And I think we start to see some of how, um, uh, arguably we start to see some of the darker side of Makem even in these nostalgic chapters, because the attitude towards... Um, uh, the attitude towards the Yules that is expressed, you know, or articulated through Atticus about the kind of whole community is they just kind of let them do what they want. And there's this early foreshadowing of how um, kind of law and order works in a way. They say that they know the Yules, you know, that, that Bob Yule isn't a good father. He's an alcoholic. He's probably abusive. His children are excused from school. Um, but they let him hunt and trap out of season, not following the other kind of guidelines because they don't want the kids to go hungry. But really, as a community, we learn now that Maycomb really isn't taking care of its own. Hmm. Um, yes, and that starts off this theme of hypocrisy, which ironically is started off by Atticus, who actually, you know, issues hypo hypocrisy. And, and that's what he really rails against in the second half of the, of the text. But he himself is not without his own um, hypocritical elements. Um, moving on in, in part one. Uh, a lot of part one is taken up with um, Scout and Jem and Dill's, especially Dill's, fascination with Boo Radley. Um, Boo Radley, uh, the um, 
reclusive uh, figure um, who, who lives in his house. As um, a mature reader, you might hear the story of Boo Radley initially and just think, oh, that, that poor man, he's been imprisoned in his house for decades. But as a child, you, you may read this and certainly Scout living it, um, uh, saw him as a, nicknamed him Boo Radley and saw him as a, or sees him as a, a figure of mystery, a, a spooky, you know, Halloween ghoulish character uh, who lives around the corner. And um, uh, part one is, is just filled, they're, they're basically chapters four through eight are just non-stop stories about how the children are fascinated with Boo Radley. And, and that's because Boo Radley, um, when you're a child, that's the scariest thing. This mystery man, who is he? He might come in the middle of the night. Once you get into part two and you see what a, what a real horror story looks like, which is the you know victimization of of an entire race of people, uh, suddenly Boo Radley doesn't seem that scary anymore. Um, uh, one of the last lines of the book is Scout saying to Atticus, "Oh, things in real life aren't scary; only in books are they scary." Which is, I mean, she's sleepy at that point when she says that, but it's um, it's it's deeply ironic because actually. The fictional stories that they tell themselves about Boo Radley scare them as children, but then what really frightens them is is the horror of the society they live in as they grow up. So, chapter uh, part one really focused on those stories about Boo Radley. By the time you get to part two, he basically disappears. In fact, Boo Radley only comes back um, uh, right at the very end to uh, to save the day, and he's only kept alive in between by Dill who is a little less mature than the, um, uh, than the others. And he is the only one who really still cares about Boo Radley. I think a useful term for how these Boo scenes function is vignette. Mm. Effectively, that's what we get. We get these little kind of set pieces, these little defining stories of their childhood. Um, uh, they function in a way a little bit, I think almost for us as readers, the way memory functions, where like you have this little thing that stands out, but then you know, the rest of life goes on. Mm. But as the end of chapter one comes along, we start to get more signs again about the town, its structure, its prejudices, its attitudes, and its divisions as we move away from those boo vignettes and onto sort of meteor fare that sets up the rest of the novel. Yeah, and the, uh, the last three chapters of uh, part one are some of my favourite chapters and uh, are really worth reading several times. The, um, uh, the N-word... Um, and the N-word, N-lover, uh, is used for the first time in chapter nine. And uh, it's a bit of a double whammy. First of all, someone at school uh, calls Atticus that, um, or calls Scout that, uh, about Atticus. And then uh, that leads her to have a conversation with him. And it's it's not until chapter nine that we have a, the first conversation in the book about race. So chapter nine, first conversation about race where Atticus, um, you know, liberal hero that he is, he says, you know, I am, you know, I, I, I love everyone and uh, I have to defend um, black people as well as white people because I couldn't look my children in the face if I didn't. So the, essentially, I mean, that, that, that might as well be like a, 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 a strap line or a motto for the, the whole book just because it, it is a book about how um, about integrity and about doing the right thing even when all of society is doing the opposite. Um, really interestingly in chapter nine is Christmas at Finch's Landing because Finch's Landing it's referenced right at the beginning on page two that is the ancestral home 
of Simon Finch, the slave owner in the family. And we have another podcast that talks in great detail about the first two pages of the novel and the first chapter and the early references to, you know, what's going on here and being alluded to in terms of the history of the South, Civil War, um, slave, you know, slaveholding and and that. So you can refer back to that if you want to kind of robust your context. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, we, we go back to the ancestral home for, for a holiday party. Um, and we find out that the um, the characters who uh, who who live there um, are uh, more old fashioned in their views, significantly less liberal, significantly less progressive. So liberal and progressive are two good words to use to describe Atticus and Scout and Jem. Um, liberal and progressive. Aunt Alexandra uh, is, uh, I suppose, she would probably say she's traditional. Mm. We we as modern readers we can comfortably say backward in her views not as bad as other characters and actually Aunt Alexandra seems to grow a little bit in part two but um uh there's there's still a lot of racism in the Finch family uh and we see that very clearly in um Scout's cousin Francis so this is another boy you know seven years old and he calls Atticus uh, um, uh an n-word lover um and that, that's an appalling sentence, an appalling idea, but it's actually coming from their own kin. This is coming from uh, their own family are, are calling Atticus this racial slur because he def- he's going to defend a black man in court. Uh, and um, although we never hear it from Aunt Alexandra herself, um, Francis says that his parents and his, his grandmother, uh, Aunt Alexandra, say that Atticus is bringing shame on the family. He's going to ruin the family. Um, And um, if you listen to the Aunt Alexandra podcast that we've got, it'll talk a little bit more about what it is she feels she's defending because really for her, she is living in the past. She's living in, you know, the Finch family is a great family and um, uh, anything liberal or progressive or modern is actually tarnishing it. It's damaging our family name. And indeed, Aunt Alexandra goes on to, you know, in the rest of the novel, be one of the people, you know, increasingly preoccupied with class. But another interesting thing about the Finch landing moment is just, um, you know, although we're not actually in Maycomb per se, we nevertheless get a sense of the stratification again of class within uh, scout society. You know, this is a far cry from the Yules and the Cunninghams' existence. And although the Depression's touching everyone, it's it's not touching everyone equally. Um and Aunt Alexandra's fixation with, you know, kind of holding her family up, elevating their status, you know, not sinking to anybody else's levels is, you know, perhaps uh, born of a depression era in which everybody's kind of, you know, knocked down a little bit more and they're trying to kind of solidify why they're different to these sort of more country folk that, um, you know, Scout is now actually going to school and mingling with. Mm. Um, uh Next chapter is chapter 10, and um, uh, this is the, you know, the famous dog shooting um, chapter, which, you know, if you watch the film version, a great deal is made out of this. Um, it, it would be interesting just sort of discussing in class, why is this chapter here? Um, uh, we see uh, the, the lesson of never shoot a mockingbird because they hurt no one. So you can shoot all the blue jays you want, but never hurt um, a mockingbird. Interestingly, the mockingbird is of the uh, f- uh, bird family of finches, which is a fun little factoid for the ornithologists out there. 
Um, but yeah, the, the children spot a mad dog in the street. Atticus is called out to shoot it. Well, actually, Atticus isn't called out to shoot it. The sheriff is called out to shoot it. Um, something no one ever mentions is it's Calpurnia who raises the alarm. And she runs, even with this mad dog in the street, she runs from door to door at, to all the neighbours are white. And she runs banging on all the doors, including the Radley house, to shout at people to stay indoors. So it's a nice little act of bravery that Calpurnia gets. Um, uh, which again shows what an important figure she is in the, the lives of the Finch family and in you know, people of Maycomb. Um, and of course, you know, I think the most obvious thing to say about this scene is the sheriff is called to shoot the dog. The sheriff hands the gun to Atticus. Atticus pulls the trigger. He kills the dog with one shot. And then, structurally, at that moment, the children are told by Miss Mordy, oh, didn't you know that your dad was the deadest shot in Maycomb? And that he has stopped shooting for you know decades because he considered that God had given him an unfair advantage. So essentially, Atticus, who was seen as this mild-mannered, possibly even slightly bumbling um, individual who's just, you know, Scout's dad. Who is he anyway? Suddenly, he is the deadest shot in Maycomb. The sheriff trusts him with his own gun. And he is the man you go to when there is a mad dog on the loose, which is an in incredible thing for Scout to realise. You know, he looks at, she looks at her, her dad with a new sense of pride. Jim certainly looks to her, uh, his father, who couldn't play uh, football like all the other dads because he's too old. But now, oh, wow, my father, look at how masculine he is. Look at how heroic he is. Look how courageous he is. Um, and that's, that's why that's there. Think about um, when we move into part two, when we see Atticus um, as a uh, trial attorney, we've actually already seen him do the toughest manliest thing in the book so far. So that kind of like uh, makes us think he's really capable, even in a tough situation. Of course, another reason for that chapter being there is because of um, another great chapter, which is the last chapter um, of part one, um, which is... Uh, Mrs. Uh, Lafayette Dubose's house. This um, horrible, ancient, ancient old lady who, um, a wonderful little detail, she keeps, um, an, there's a legend that she keeps an old Confederate pistol. Uh, that's an old Southern Army pistol from the Civil War, the, you know, the, the side that lost the war that wanted to keep slaves. She apparently keeps one of those tucked under her dress just in case. No one knows if it's true or not. Um, but every time Gem and Scout walk past, uh, she insults them and she insults Atticus and she says all sorts of horrible things. Um, long story short, as you read the chapter, uh, Gem uh, damages uh, her, her camellia uh, plant and has to go through with the punishment of spending a month every afternoon reading to her. And she never lets up. She's always horribly mean uh, about Atticus and says the most horrible foul mouth things. But... Atticus then tells us after she's died, tells Jem um, she was actually suffering from morphine addiction and uh, all the reading that you did uh, helped keep her mind off it so that she could die uh, in peace, not beholden to anything, not on drugs, go meet her maker um, you know, uh, without using the crutch of morphine, which is heroin, it's close to heroin. Um, and uh, the, the most moving thing about that chapter is uh, Atticus says, um, uh, I wanted you to see what real courage looks like. 
that courage isn't a man with a gun. So think about what we've just seen. Chapter 10, Atticus is a man with a gun. He shoots the dog. Jem is beaming with respect for his father. A chapter later, Atticus teaches Jem this incredibly hard lesson that actually a man with a gun isn't courage. Um, and is even very generous in the way that he says real courage is being this horrible old racist woman, uh, but uh, fighting morphine addiction and that you've got to uh, give people uh, their due. So just to bring it back, you know, what do we learn about Maycomb? I think we get a series of vignettes. We get a lot of different senses of different peoples. In a way, the first part of the novel can feel a bit meandering, um, people, but people love it. You know, readers like to return to it, bask in these sort of nostalgic stories of childhood. But for all of the nostalgia we get, we do have that older scout, that narrator scout, filtering some of these experiences to us with a slightly arch edge. Um, and so we uh, meet this cast of characters and uh, they set us up for some of the stuff that lurks underneath in part two. Yeah. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that podcast. It's a, it was a long one, but uh, hopefully that's walked you through all of the harder to spot areas of part one. Thank you very much and goodbye. There's reference back on page two. Um, that this is where Simon Finch established a stronghold and started off with two slaves and then uh, yeah, bought cotton. Uh, but um, uh, but the, uh, the, the members of the Finch family, including Aunt Alexandra, who still live at Finch's Landing, uh, remember it's a tradition that the Finches always stay there, uh, they definitely have one foot in the South. Um, they definitely... Uh, sorry, in the Old South. They, if you like, are almost... Um, uh, uh, upper class or see themselves as part of um, a southern aristocracy, which would have honestly been like a, a, a multi-million dollar sort of uh, business uh, pre-Civil War. So during slavery up until 1865, um, if you were a, a landowner and a slave owner in the South, you're, you, you would have been one of the wealthiest families in the world, let alone in, in, a, in just the United States. Um, but bear in mind, a key theme about the Finch family is what's called Southern Decline. So from 1865, uh, 60 years later, you get to the 30s, or 70 years later, you get to the 30s when this book is set. That's 70 years worth of decline, 70 years worth of the Finch family and other slave-owning families not making the same amount of money, not being able to have slaves to work their their, um, cotton fields. And so Finch's Landing really represents... Um, the historic past in uh, American um, history. And um, so that's what I mean when I say Finch's Landing has, has one foot in the past and all of the characters there have these slightly old-fashioned views. There's a separate podcast on Aunt Alexandra about sort of Southern womanhood and the Southern Belle. But most importantly, it's, um, uh, the, um, it's Francis, the cousin, uh, who um, uses the word, uh, you know, N lover, the N word lover, to in order to describe 